You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of the Library Pros. Today, we are at the Long Island Library Resources Council's 31st Annual Conference of Libraries in the Future. This is, I think, our fifth time uh, appearing and podcasting from the event. So we hope you enjoy it. One thing that's really cool is we have it usually at the Heritage Club in Bethpage, New York, and I believe this is our second time uh, back in person. And we're going to be speaking with a couple of great speakers, the first being James Neal, who is the University Librarian Emeritus at Columbia University. And we're going to be talking with Cynthia Samuel, Assistant Director at the Uniondale Library. And we're going to be talking about leadership. So without any further ado, let's get to our first guest. Hi, and welcome to our first guest. We have here at the Lower Conference, James Neal. He is the University Librarian Emeritus at Columbia University, and he served as Vice President for Information Services and University Librarian at Columbia University during 2001 to 2014. Previously, he served as a Dean of University Libraries at Indiana University and Johns Hopkins University. He was also the 2017-2018 President of the American Library Association. Jim's going to start the conference today. Well, actually, he did start the conference today, talking about the nature of leadership and how it's defined. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I look very forward. This is my first uh, opportunity to give a presentation in person post-COVID. Oh, that's that's great. That's awesome. We were just talking. I was mingling with some of our colleagues before, and we were saying this is the first real big one that we've had since since COVID hit. So uh, we're all kind of feeling a little nervous, but uh, happy at the same time because we haven't seen each other in a long time. So the first thing I want to bring up when you when you were giving your speech was the concept of you can't count the apples from the seeds. Can you explain that for me? Yes. Um, and that notion is it's actually a quote from Ken Casey. And he he noted that you can count the seeds in the apples. That is, there's a predictability once you've done that. Uh, But you can't count the apples in the seed. When you plant that seed, you don't know what's going to happen. Whether it's going to survive, whether a tree will grow, whether it will be a productive tree, producing a lot of apples. Um, And to me, it was all about the unpredictability of the future. And to me, leadership is understanding that uh, uh, we can't always predict the future, and we need to be agile and ready uh, to provide leadership in a variety of ways, uh, given that uh, lack of uh, lack of uh, insight about the future. Another thing that you were talking about that really, there were two, two main points that I really gravitated to. One was leadership. Is it a science or an art? 
And I don't know that there's ever going to be an answer to that. Uh, no, I don't think so. And I think I raise that because it is it is an open question and one that's debated actively in the literature of leadership. Uh, the notion that uh, you you are born to be a leader, uh, that you have that innate quality to be a leader, uh, versus something you can learn you know, going through uh, training, education, experience uh, to become a leader. And there's two worldviews on that. Uh, I tend to think it's a combination. I think there's certain innate qualities and abilities, um, but also people can develop those qualities and abilities as well. So to me, it's both a science and an art. So another another thing that is, is talked about ad nauseum when it comes to leadership, leaders, are leaders born or are they made? I think, again... Well, that's the science and art issue we're Yeah. Is it an innate quality that we have or is it something we learn and develop in an overall Right. Some people seem to have instinct too, which yes. you know makes makes a big difference with regard to to that. So in terms of that, I, I wanted to ask you how you felt about the in terms of the structure of an organization, whether it's a library or a corporation or what have you. The difference between the formal, for lack of a better way to describe it, command structure versus that informal command structure, where you know you have a director, assistant director, and you know your department heads versus you know Sally kind of runs that department even though she's a clerk. You know, how, how important do you think it is for a leader to understand that informal structure? Well, I think the, I think the informal structure is essential uh, to the working of an organization, say, success of a library. Uh, if you remember the different models that I outlined, uh, one of them was the bureaucratic model, which is very reliant on organization charts, change of command, uh, top-down decision-making, uh, the hierarchy and bureaucracy characteristics is something I think we need to let go of and recognize that there is this culture of leadership across the organization and that different individuals in different ways, at different times, for different purposes, provide the leadership that the organization needs. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. I agree 100%. You know, one other thing that, that I wanted to touch on, you, you talked about collaboration, and especially in the library field. It's a, it's a field that lends itself towards collaboration. Um, whether it's within the building, within the library system, within a, a, whether it's branches, or whether it's you know, a general library system. But one thing that's really kind of interesting in terms of what we focus here on our podcast about with technology is sometimes you don't, you, you'll see the interaction between the leadership of libraries, but you won't see the actual collaboration where they partner on something. And it happens at a lower level. It happens at the middle management level. And a lot of times it happens because of the integration of technology, whether it's your ILS or whether it's somebody building a makerspace or somebody who's doing something where they, they, they need that input from another librarian or another tech person from another library. How do you feel about the idea that the technology draws librarians into collaborate more than that, that formal structure that's been around since forever? I think technology has been a critical factor, but it's not the only factor. I think we, in the 20th century, we meaning libraries and library workers, have developed strong commitment to um, to um, collaboration. Uh, I 
call it, you heard me call it Kumbaya, uh, shared cataloging, interlibrary loan, uh, shared systems, and so forth. Uh, but to me, that needs to be exceeded, needs to be radicalized. Um, I think there's too much duplication in libraries today, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of uh, uh, collections and in terms of processes. Uh, also in terms of technology and applications. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're be we started to see uh, more radical collaboration over the last 10 years, although I think COVID disrupted it, where collections are being stored together, both um, physical collections and shared facilities, shared collections, uh, and digital collections, which I think are being built uh, much more collaboratively. The development of apps, applications, um, sharing staff, which I think is, is perhaps one of the more radical strategies, uh, that is having an individual with a deep expertise in a particular area serving multiple institutions, multiple, communi multiple communities, uh, thus allowing us to extend our resources more effectively to other areas of need. So I think we come out of a tradition of collaboration, but we need to think more aggressively and more systemically about the opportunities for collaboration going forward. Well, it was interesting, it, building on that, you had talked about acquisitions departments and you know tech services and all that stuff, and how you feel it should be more centralized. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think regional centers are, to me, the solution where, and I think school library systems very often have that, uh, but it's less common in public library and academic library settings, uh, where I think uh, as a result of, of each library doing those things, we tend to have a very thin set of, of skill sets across those multiple organizations, whereas collaboration, centralization of those functions could allow for more depth, more expertise, and perhaps more effectiveness in serving the needs of multiple libraries. Well, in terms of here in Suffolk County and also in Nassau County, we share an ILS. Yeah. So every library goes and, and you know, catalogs their material. And if somebody else goes and, and alters that record, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm an expert on how that works anymore. I'm not. But it seems as though if it was centralized to one place and it was cataloged in a way where it has the same Dewey number across all, and the same cutter number across all the, all the libraries within that, within that system, it would just make for more uniformity. And not only uniformity, but the freeing of resources. Right, exactly. Yeah. And each library having a, uh, a cataloger who does his media why not have a centralized media cataloging unit and allowing those individuals, to perhaps who are freed from those responsibilities, to focus more on digitization of collections, more on serving users. Uh, not that acquisitions and cataloging people don't serve users. That is a very important role that we play. But I think we're missing an opportunity to extend our resources in a very resource-challenged environment right now. And what's interesting is it circles back around to leadership again, where somebody needs to t make that that initial either um, suggestion, or if they are in that position where they can make it happen, they have to be able to take that leap and say, yes. "This is how we're doing it." Yes, and that's or or ends. or the cataloging community can also think creatively and innovatively how they approach their work, and that could be a proposal that comes across multiple libraries uh, to multiple directors. 
And one other thing you had, you had touched upon is that leaders aren't necessarily the director. Leaders no. aren't necessarily your assistant director or your, your board. They are leaders, but not, they're not the only leaders. Correct. And uh, everyone is a leader is a concept which I've held to for decades. And how do you create a culture within that library or that organization that people see the ability uh, to make uh, choices, decisions, uh, leadership, to, to advance their leadership role uh, within the organization and within the wider community? Uh, and I think that's an organizational culture matter. Mm -hmm. um, it breaks away from the organizational chart, which dictates where decisions are made. Uh, you heard me use the word chaos. Yes. Uh, I think that's. I think a, you like chaos. I like chaos. I like chaos, and I like managed chaos. And it was, you know, I think it's important that there's a sense of disruption. Uh, there's a sense of innovation. Uh, there's a sense of risk taking within an organization, and that that type of chaos uh, should not be driven from the top, but should be part of the organizational culture. Um, and I think that's going to be very important to our success and impact going forward. Well, I also think that chaos also, as you said, breeds innovation. I think it, it, it stirs the waters to the point where it, it brings up things that haven't been brought up before exactly. and allows for free thought. Absolutely. Because uh, without free thought, we're just we're, we're punching library cards. Exactly. And, and without that, that concept of um, developing something new, nothing will come up if you don't let there be some chaos. Yes. Yeah, chaos. As I important. said, chaos breeds life. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm watching a, a series on Hulu. Uh, it's about Derek Jeter from the New York Yankees called The Captain. And I'm not, I don't know the exact quotation, but he said, it's something along the lines where competition eliminates complacency. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that, that fits into the library world? Oh, I think it's very important. We, we've tended to be complacent because we've had a built-in dependable source of revenue of our institution. And as our institutions have faced, as our communities have faced financial challenges, we've had to be creative, really creative, in managing uh, stable or reduced resources. Uh, I think, as I said several times in my presentation, we need to make the move from resource management to resource development. Uh, we need to uh, gather funds from a variety of sources in our community, whether that be grants or whether that be foundations, whether that be federal grants, for, uh, donors, uh, which I think is an undeveloped area in many libraries, tends to fall on the shoulders of the director or a development director and not more widely within the library organization. And so I think that uh, an entrepreneurial, uh, how do we leverage our assets? How do we make money? off the things that we have. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the project Project Muse. No. Uh, project Muse was uh, mid-1990s at Johns Hopkins. Working with University Press, we began to make um, uh, humanities and social sciences journals available electronically. And it was most of that work has been done in the science and medical field up to that point. And it became a hugely successful business. And half of the net revenue from that business uh, was used in the library's budget. Um, 
one of the most beautiful libraries in the world, um, the Peabody Library in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. um, it is. It's just an absolutely brilliant space. And we would uh, run it as a library during the day and lease it out every evening and every weekend for social events, for weddings. And we had enormous revenue uh, off of uh, leveraging one of our assets, beautiful space. Um, and at Columbia, we had something called the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning, which was working to develop online learning capacity and uh, capabilities. And that became really important during COVID. Uh, but we were uh, gathering regularly grants and donations and building working relationships with academic departments so they would co-fund the development of uh, courses that supported their curriculum. So all of those represent examples of entrepreneurial work that I think libraries need to embrace. You know, and libraries do, even here in, Suff in Suffolk County, Nassau County, where we're in the public library world, we have some beautiful buildings. Yes. And I don't know how it fits in with charters and being not-for-profits and all that yes. other stuff. Uh, that's something that you know the lawyers would have to work out. But in terms of finding that additional revenue that you could then parlay into maybe getting more technology, maybe if hiring if you, some new staff, right? If you have a beautiful space like a garden and you want to hire yes. for for wedding photos, let's say, yes, maybe. It could be something that library yeah. staff can do with the SLR cameras, and you know, it's, yeah. or make it available and partner with local photographers or whatever. There, there's so many different opportunities that can be that, that obviously needs to be approached uh, carefully and thoughtfully, uh, particularly given the types of charter and the legal issues that you might face. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think it puts our not-for-profit status at risk uh, because it, it still will only represent a modest uh, proportion of the library's budget. One thing that you had mentioned that you actually got a, a large round of applause for, and I, I found it quite funny because, I mean, strategic planning is strategic planning. You have to do that five-year plan, right? And at the end, at, in two and a half years in, you have to come up with another five-year plan. So it's like an overlapping two and a half year plan. Explain, why do you think you got such a, such a round of applause? And can you explain the concept you had where, in terms of strategic planning, look at the library's budget? That's right. So those are two different ideas I like to talk about. Uh, one is, I think strategic planning has become not an aspiration, but a process. A job. Yes. Uh, and libraries all over the country, all over the world, um, have hired consultants or built uh, strategic planning teams and uh, go out to the community and ask a lot of questions, raise expectations, uh, come out with a new set of goals and activities that will advance those goals. You know, what is our vision? And these are all valuable exercises, but I question whether they ultimately dictate or determine what a library actually does. Right. And there are obvious good exceptions to that. Um, I think that ultimately a library will make choices about what it's going to invest in, what it's going to do, mm -hmm. and those are reflected in the budget. If you think acquisitions and cataloging is really important, then that unit will have an, a large and protected budget. If you think technology is defining of our future, there will be a real commitment within the budget uh, to technology and applications and support staff for technology, uh, partnerships with technology, or technology organizations. And so I always ask, when I'm in a library uh, providing some counsel and support, I always 
asked to see the budget and to see the, the budget five years ago so that I can compare what the trend has been in that library's investments over that five-year period. Uh, to me, that's uh, I sort of overstate things in a way that try to make a point. Sure. Obviously, we do strategic planning. I get it. Yeah. I don't like it, and I think most staff don't like it. Exactly. Uh, and I think uh, the budget sometimes is difficult to change significantly. Uh, I get that. I understand that, particularly when we're challenged with our resources. Mm -hmm. That's where entrepreneur resource development comes into play. So. Yeah, yeah, and it really, it's its almost as though you're, you're peeling back a layer of the onion yes. to see where the real priorities are. Exactly. And that's when you can then say, well, what is the strategic plan based upon the priorities that you have in your budget? That's right. Yeah. If two and a half years out, you're writing a new five-year plan, then something... Something's wrong, that's right? Something's wrong. <laughs> or you're writing the same strategic yeah. plan. And five years is too long. It's too long. I mean, right? we're just trying to get through this year, right? I mean, just in terms of what just happened with the pandemic. I mean, you, yeah. in 2019, you had a five-year strategic plan. Where did that go? No, it didn't. It, it was no longer relevant to our work. Exactly, and it transformed our profession as well. Exactly. So now a new five-year plan is going to be based upon what happened in the last two or three years, and it may not apply in two or three years. Yeah, I think that I find more relevant the the things that I said said about user expectations. They want to be social. Uh, they want to be successful. They want to be productive. Uh, they want to have uh, good careers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, through right. all the things that I outlined. And to me, that's our strategic plan. How do we translate our, our, our content and our services, our infrastructure, our technology, our applications into the success of our user communities. Right. That, to me, is what it's all about. Right. In terms of, instead of having some type of strategic plan, have goals, realistic goals, short-term goals, mid-term yeah. goals, and, and, yeah. and try to hit those instead. And the other thing I often object to with strategic, strategic planning is that it ignores the library workers, the library staff. It doesn't build understanding, respect, support for library employees, library staff. And to me, that's a real shortfall in a lot of our strategic planning. Because those are the people that are doing the work. Exactly. And make that happen. Exactly. And a lot of times, not necessarily in every organization, but I'm going to be really broad and generalize, you know, the workers are left behind. Yes. They're seen as um, fodder for whatever that plan is. Yeah, do what I say. Exactly. Yeah, we'll set your goals and you'll achieve them. That autocrats. And, and then I'll, then I'll yeah. reward you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carrot and stick. Yeah. Yeah. Which is unacceptable. In this profession, absolutely, yes. yeah. Absolutely. Well, James Neal, thank oh. you so much for coming on. I appreciate you speaking with us, and we'd love to have you on again to, to delve, this, delve into this further. Okay, thank you. I really you appreciate the on. opportunity. Thank you. Okay, we're back for part two with one of my favorite people, <laughs> return guest, Santisha Kendricks Samuels. Samuels. I knew I was going to screw it up. No, I always you get it in my brain and I forget. That's all right. So Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to see you back again. Same here. Um, so great conference so far, right? Yes, I really enjoyed James Neal. Yes. And um, it was, and even the um, Weinberg, Dr. Yes. Weinberg, Dr. Weinberger. 
I really appreciated the question, the Q and A part when he just kind of started riffing about things. Absolutely, I felt it was more real world application. At least mm-hmm. I could understand it more. But it was. It's been really a really good conference. And for me, in terms of leadership, especially with Dr. Neil, mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of grounded where it wasn't like these lofty goals. Yes, you know, he talked about you know. The formal versus the informal, and you know how how those five year plans don't mean anything, even though they do. Because if you do another five year plan in two years, then what did you really accomplish? Because now you're overlapping plans, and it was funny because he got a round of applause for that. It's you know I guess it hit home because I think also because uh, it seems like we have to be more compliant with state regulations. <laughs> more and more state regulations, right? Yes. So a lot of um, library administrators have had to formulate strategic plans for their community and post them online for transparency and all that. So it's a lot of work that goes into that. So well, I could definitely see it. What I'd like to see is that if you really want to see the strategic plan, look at the budget. Because <laughs> that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. And and that's what I really like about him, too, um, talking about James Neal. Because a lot, even, like, I found myself doing a lot of self-reflection in terms of the type of person I am. And then when it comes to leadership, I saw things that I think I excel at, but then things that I need to work on. Especially when it comes to like collaboration and stuff. Well, you know, we had talked about collaboration when he was on in the last segment. And, you know, librarians are really good at collaborating, but it's not, and I'm not dissing administration, but mm-hmm. it seems as though on the administration level, there's mm-hmm. less collaboration. Yeah, you, you have director's lists and you chat, like, you know, who's closing for snow and, you know, you have your, your meetings at NLS, you know, National Library System, for those who aren't from Long Island, or, or SCLS, South County Cooperative Library System. Um, but in terms of real collaboration, it happens at the mid-level. Mm-hmm. So, like, I can only speak from my experience with the technology because we created the technology forum and all that other stuff. And we have those meetings and where there's a lot of collaboration across libraries, sharing what we're doing, maybe even recruiting you know, IT people or, or tech librarian people to come teach at other libraries or just sharing resources where and it, it probably is that way too with the different associations through SCLA and NCLA mm-hmm. where they talk at the mid-level and there's a lot of collaboration there but there isn't a lot of collaboration at the top and I think that's where um, there needs to be a little bit more in terms of resource sharing and maybe having meetings and and sharing the resources kind of like he was talking about with acquisitions and and tech services and stuff like that I can see that, but I can I can also see why probably there isn't because I feel like at the top, those directors, they're more beholden to those trustees. Yep. And the taxpayers in their community and the responsible use of public funds, things like that, where they have to put that before everything else, so they can encourage it with their staff because we have those organizations like NCLA and SCLA where we sure. can all work together, but. The staff isn't at the board meeting answering questions from the right. public and from the trustees. And you see, that's the interesting part, not being in library administration. You know, it's one thing to be a department. It's another thing to, to answer to trustees and, and to the public, where if the staff understood more about that, maybe they would be less of, oh, well, you know how blah, blah, blah is, the administrator, my director is, or whatever. Not, you know, seeing the big picture, and a lot of times the mid-level and the lower-level staff don't see the big picture. Yeah, and you know, it's a learning process. It's like you said, like, I'm, I'm relatively new in this role. And, like, 
I'm still learning things. I was at one of um, these directors meetings and there was a, a passionate conversation about resource sharing codes. And it never, this was new to me in terms of like, you know, I guess certain libraries, they have to pay a certain amount of funds or what, however that process works. But a lot of directors were like, well, what am I going to tell my trustees? You know, and it, it Right, and that's, that's the part that I think scare isn't the right word. Concerns because the directors because they have to answer to the board. Some people, some libraries have great boards. Some libraries have board members that are difficult and some, you know, they're putting their helmet and vest on every time they go into a board meeting. So, mm-hmm. you know, and you can have the best board in the world, but if you just do one thing that they don't agree with, you know, you don't want to sour that relationship. Exactly. It's a fine line. So, I mean, it's, it's I'm glad I came today because it's given me a lot of food for thought. And I think a lot, I think all of us here, because we're librarians, we work for the, we're serving our communities. We want to stay relevant. And part of that is leadership and then being willing to embrace transformation and change, but to do it in a pri- in a proper way. You know, it's very and, interesting. And, you know, it, the proper way for Uniondale may not be the proper way for Sachem, may mm-hmm. not be the proper way for Pat Med. It may not be that way for Locust Valley. It, it, it really is. You could have two library districts that abut each other and they have completely different needs because yes. those, those artificial boundaries create different cultures within those communities. And every community is going to have a different way of looking at something. Exactly. And that's the, even going back to, I look over across the border to the West at like, you know, Queens or Brooklyn public or New York, like we're di- someone said years ago that out here it's like, um, and that's we have 54 libraries. So it's like 54 little fiefdoms. Yep. And so it's not going to be the same as a big system where you have central, where they do the ordering and delegate it. So the needs are different. And like, and even within the communities, North side could be completely different from South side. Correct. So it's various factors at play. Yeah, yeah. And so back to that whole sharing of, and collaborating, I think administrators can do it to a certain degree. It, it, so it's almost like compartmentalizing, uh-huh. knowing you have to deal with your board and all that other stuff. But I think if you collaborate with, let's say, CHM is going to collaborate with Patrick Medford or with uh-huh. ConnectQuat or with Smithtown, a lot of it could be, not uh, spin isn't the right word, but, you know, you, you bill it to the board as this is a benefit to our community because we're sharing X, Y, and Z with another library or another set of libraries, which then gives us more spending power, which is different than dealing with the consortia. Uh-huh. You know, so there's different things. I mean, I'm just, I'm riffing here, but, you know. And then, too, though, but what if they throw back at you? But isn't that why we're part of Suffolk County Library System? Isn't that how we collaborate Right, exactly. So it's, <laughs> it, it's a double-edged sword, right? Yes. You, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah. But the whole idea, I guess, so collaboration does kind of belong mid-level then, right? Because me as a department head, yes, mm-hmm. ultimately I do have to answer to the board and to the public. Mm-hmm. But it's easier because that's what the administrators do. They run the interference for us in a Ex- way. Exactly. Because even like when I think back to, because um, I was um, head of team services and working with, we did a battle of the books between us and Freeport one year, which was a ton of fun. My friend Michelle Samuel, she was... Love Michelle. She's yes. great. And she's in there. You want to grab her. But, um, you should. But, you know, something like, and it looks good. Like, you bring in two groups of kids together. They're talking about books, something productive. But And they're meeting people they wouldn't ordinarily meet. Because it's exactly. outside of their, like a better way to describe their little kingdom, right? Yeah. 
And then, like, was it a lot of funds being used? No, it was like it was almost zero dollars spent, but it was great. It's a spent. pizza and some drinks and mm-hmm. and little trophies from um, I think Oriental Trading. Yeah, you know? exactly. So it, it's different when you're like in the trenches. I do believe it is easier. Then when you're, I don't like saying at the top, but when you're, yeah, I, I get you. I yeah. totally understand. It's it's not the top, but it's the the administration. I mean, that's why it's such a. It's the word I'm looking for to describe it. It's such a. It, it's a hard word to describe. I'm not going to say that it's the top. I'm not going to say it's the hard job. I'm not going to say you know any of that other stuff. It's just it's where the the buck stops. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. It's where the buck stops. So if you make the mistake. At the end, it's it's always like okay if if my managers screw something up, my name is still on the door. Exactly. We were just talking about that at our lunch table um, with some some administrators. I won't say any names, but <laughs> and one person said, you know, it could be a great idea, whatever. But sometimes if you don't take the proper steps, and it comes back to bite you in the behind, so to speak, it's going to fall on 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 the director's lap. You yep. know, the other person who recommended it is not going to say, well, this is really me, but. It's that person's responsibility. Because yeah, at the end of the day, you—it's the—you are the, the physical embodiment of the library to the board. Mm-hmm. So it could be, yeah, Chris screwed this up really bad. It doesn't matter, because here I am as the director, and I have to account for it. Because yes. this person was under my, you know, lack of a better way to describe it, under my command or under my um, supervision. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it's like your career path. A lot of people want to rise to the top. <laughs> But you gotta be careful what you wish for sometimes, yes. right? Yes. So, you know, it is what it is. Well, you know what I like too about Dr. Neal's approach? He talked about all the different types of leaders. I mean, mm-hmm. we all laughed when we saw the autocrat. Because uh-huh. we all, in one time in our career, worked for an autocrat. Uh, but some of us have a little bit of the autocrat in us. Right, exactly. Yeah, so like, hmm, am I doing that? Oh, maybe I am. So you have to have like that, that, that point of reflection and say, maybe I need to tweak. Mm-hmm. But it was also interesting. There was another one that was like passive, and one where I don't know how what the representation of the word was, but it was the person that works alongside, and he almost painted that as a weakness. I remember servant. Then it was laissez-faire. I think it was servant, servant, servant and laser fair. Yeah. Okay. So servant was like he almost built that as like a weakness. But honestly, if you're if you're leading by being out front and doing like everyone else does, when you can obviously because yes. you're not doing all the admin stuff. I think that sets the tone. That's I'm a firm believer in that. Like, for example, during the summer, we do Island Harvest. And I really, you know, everyone pitches in, but I feel like that's my baby. And because of COVID, it's been grab and go, meaning that we're outside the library, under a tree, in the elements. And for me, I wouldn't feel right asking staff to stand out in 85-degree heat, 100% humidity, and I'm in my office in the air conditioning. Right. So I'm out there sweating with them the three days a week. And it's a, I'm tired. And by August, I'm stressed out. But for me, that's that's me serving the community. And then also working with my staff. Right. right. I'm not going to ask you to do something I wouldn't do. Correct. Which I think, to me, that's a positive. Well, you know, it, it's, it's a... It's the thing that I subscribe to because in, in the makerspace where I work, mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask them to do anything I wouldn't do. And if it's a difficult patron, I'm the first one that says, are you comfortable? Because I will come out and do it. Mm-hmm. And when you do have to ask them to do something that you know because you were in the trenches, that this is like the worst thing to do. And it came from someplace else and it has to be done and there's no getting around it. I honestly feel like 
the, the guys that work for me, I can say that because it's mostly all men in my department, mm-hmm. generalizing, um, <laughs> they will feel the same way I do. But they're like, you know what, Chris really, he hooks us up and he takes care of us. And I know he'd do this too, so it's okay. See? And that's, I think, the difference. It is. It's payoff. You yep. know, it's, and you want, and then too, there was, um, there was another type of leader where it, I felt like it had a little bit of a negative, like paternalistic or, or almost like. Yeah. It's almost, like being the mom or the dad. Yeah. Or almost like a cult like type of thing. Like, yeah. I forgot what the term was. Yeah. Which you got to be careful of. But it's like loyalty does mean something. Right. If it's balanced. But it can't be loyalty to the point where they think you're the best thing since sliced bread and there's nothing else. Yes. I mean. And then they won't work with anyone else or it's. Right. Or if you decide, you know, your career path is taking you to another library now, then what are they all going to do? And they think it's the end of the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, as much as we're happy where we are, you never know where your path is going to lead you. Exactly. You know, I've known a few savvy directors who seem to, uh, they may go to another library and their people follow them eventually. Yeah, exactly, right? How does that happen? How do you make that happen? It takes skill it and does. patience. It does. It's like, it, it, we joke, we, we call it pilfering. But, you know, or, or we, you know, or we rescue people or, you know. Oh, that is funny. It's like, you know, rescuing somebody from, from a bad situation or whatever. No one left behind. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it, it is interesting and it's good to go to conferences, even a mini one-day conference like this, where mm-hmm. we can take that second and be reflective. As long as the, yes. the speaker isn't hitting you with a hundred different things in you know two minutes, mm-hmm. um, to be reflective, to actually say, "Am I that person? Am I this person? How? What am I missing? That I? Oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I should try doing something like that." Exactly, and that's really what I'm taking away. Because I mean, and I freely admit it, like. My career, I've mostly been a lone wolf, especially, he's known YA librarians, especially back in the day. You had to. You had no choice. You had to do everything. So I have to actively work at collaborating (laughs) as opposed to saying, I know what I want to get done. Let me just do it because I know I'm going to do it. It's not like that. And we're supposed to be a team. And then the whole idea of mentoring people and things like that. Yep. I counted a privilege, a blessing that at least now I'm at this point where I could do that, but I just have to check myself. Right. And let me ask you this being not an administrator. Do you ever catch yourself saying, how did I get here? Like the imposter syndrome thing? Oh, heck yeah. yeah. It's like, and even, um, and I, I really feel for people who truly suffer from anxiety or things like that. Maybe I, I do, but I, I don't know. I probably have an unhealthy way of coping, whatever. But the only time... <laughs> Too much gardening? I think maybe that. <laughs> it's like, why is she outside with packs of cow manure around her? But um, <laughs> the only time I really felt, like, anxiety or stressed out was when I was entering this role. Because I felt like everybody else was pushing me into it. But I was like, am I really... Is this really me? But it, it, was, it was wild. I got over it. But. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, you know, at some point, if you're fortunate enough in your career, it's almost like riding a wave, you know. And, and you say, "Oh, oh, they want you to take on this next role." And you're like, "Am I ready for this?" Or if you go into a role and you really don't know anything about it other than it's the, you know, it's the shining ring, you know, that you're trying to catch. It's the the house, the, not the house, the, the city on a hill, you know. Mm-hmm. And you're like, "Oh, I get to be the assistant director or the director." Now you're there, and you're like, "Uh oh, now what?" Yes, There's or, no training. 
No, it's day by day. And like, I'm constantly learning. And then too, your path, like my passion, I will, my passion is still working with young people. That's why I held on to that garden outside <laughs> or with Island Harvest because we use our team volunteers to help us. But it's, I, I, I find myself envious of my colleagues who are content. They're okay if, you know, they're retiring after 30, 40 years and they're the YA librarian mm-hmm. or the head of children's whatever. I, I find myself envious because yeah. it's like, you know, that's my passion will always be to be work with teens. Or even like you see somebody who's been a librarian one almost their entire career and they're content with that. Now, I don't mean like complacent content. I mean, like they're perfectly happy doing what they do. Mm-hmm. And there is a certain peace to that where they've made peace with it to a point. Mm-hmm. But... I think people like you and I, I don't know if we ever get that kind of peace. We're always I, striving, you know? You're right, because I always, I'm he, you hear me now talking about my passion, da, 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 but then I also knew if I didn't go for it, and, and like, you know, if they offered me the position and I accepted it, I would have been a miserable cuss. Like, if somebody else walked in mm-hmm. and became assistant director. Right. So, the, the regret and the resentment and all the other you things. You don't want yeah. that. No. And especially, you know, if you know you can. As an administrator, you can do more for the entire community as mm-hmm. opposed to one segment. Yep. So that's how that's what helped me to embrace it. I still I'm learning, you know, about plumbing, carpet. I think I might want to become a carpenter one day. Like, <laughs> learn more stuff. It's fun. It, it's a lot of fun. bits and all this other oh, stuff. Oh yeah, wait, wait till you get involved in those toys. Oh, um, it's a different kind of Christmas. It, it, it's really funny though, but. It's you know I'm learning I have to do that but at the same time I can do cultural things or be you know and you're a decision partner. maker yes you yes. can be the green lighter exactly which yes you still have to answer to your to your director and your board and all that other stuff but you can talk about advocacy right now you can mm-hmm. really advocate for the YA department because let's face it the YA department is only something's been around for the last 10 15 years it's it's really in in terms of library land it's it's a it's a New idea. And it says, oh, can I use this form? I don't know what time it is. Go for it, sure. I just want to advocate for YA departments because you're right. It hasn't been very long that it seemed like at one point every library. It's just part of children's. Yeah, youth services. You know, then that changed. But now I'm seeing that they're being merged back into youth services. Ooh, really? And, you know, I just, if you're a library administrator out there and you're considering this, just. The YA department deserves its own budget, a decent budget, because your teens are going to eventually, they deserve quality library and it's programming. it's more than soda and pizza. Yes. And if you and, have... And oriental training. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. right. And to get a competent individual in there serving them, because they deserve it now, but eventually they're going to grow up, they're going to vote on your budget, and <laughs> they're going to have more And they're going to become future stakeholders in being in your community. And you want to exactly. keep them before they have kids because they don't come talk about the 20s, 30-somethings, right? They never come mm-hmm. back. You need to have that YA librarian to build it out and work with your adult reference department yes. to have that transitionary thing yes. that's going to keep them here and not wait until after they get back from college and then get married and have kids and then come back. Because exactly. that's the, the cycle stops at YA. They don't, make, they don't transition to adults. Yeah, they disappear. So, you know, it's so much involved. So I just want to say young adult services are very important. And I hope they don't become go the way of the dodo bird, you know. Let's hope not. I hope not. Can, can we just uh, maybe for a second say that maybe part of this um, has to do with civil service, maybe? 
I mean, well, they're always the, the evil evildoers. That and Nick Tansy, but Nick's not here to defend himself. Um, <laughs> Poor Nick. <laughs> well, Nick's Nick. Uh, so, you know, in terms of that is, because I can't speak for Nassau. In mm-hmm. Suffolk, I don't think there is a, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, put it in the comments because it's happened before. I don't mm-hmm. think there was a specific teen librarian line. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, there isn't. It has to be f- crafted and molded and sculpted from, like, so maybe you're an adult librarian, maybe you're a children's librarian. Because even, just think in terms of your degree, right? Mm-hmm. I can't work in children's. I don't have the certification. I didn't take those extra classes. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing for YA. So library schools out there, are you listening to us? As I, I think Queens has the closest. They had one, it might have been youth services certification. Yeah. yeah. And it was four classes. I'm missing one. I tried to go back to get the last me. I was trying to save money. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but you're right. Like for NASA civil service, because I know at least in Suffolk, you have the children's librarian yes, list. Yes, there was a children's list, yeah. There's just a straight librarian one list and a librarian two list. Damn. The only time you can really craft it is in the canvas letter. So you specify you're looking for someone with experience or a desire, at least, to work with grades 6 through 12 or whatever your teen services is. So it is a problem because, yeah, civil service is an issue because you may get people who check yes, even though you're like you're working with 6th through 12th graders. um, Do you know about this pop culture or whatever? And some people just want a job. They they just want a job. And they say yes. And it's like you're wasting your time and they're wasting their time. It's, It's very frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, teen librarians, YA librarians, whatever. I mean, I don't even know. There's so many different terms of art for them now. Yeah, I mean, just for librarians. I didn't know there were user experience librarians. Or like, or, or, I you know, know. There's, so many, there's so many different ways librarians go now. That it's like, now there's makerspace librarians. There's technology librarians. I guess we kind of manufacture these titles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we live, and for those certain association libraries that don't have uh, the civil service requirement, it makes it easier to do those titles. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of how, first of all, you craft your civil service letter and then how you delineate, as long as they're within that title, librarian one, librarian two, you can give them whatever title you want. Yeah, because it doesn't matter to civil service. It doesn't matter. You know, and we've, I think we've all heard stories of um, librarians being transferred within a library and someone may be up, well, I'm a reference library. Well, no, you're a librarian one. Right. So I could put you in the children's department. Ideally, you wouldn't do that to a person. Right. But See, we can't do that in Suffolk unless they have the certification. Okay. But there's always that other duties as assigned <laughs> designation, right? Oh, my goodness. Always a loophole. So the certification, see, that's cool. At least you have to have that certification in Suffolk. I don't think you have to have it in Nassau. Really? You probably get more points on a test, I believe, mm-hmm. but it's a general test. So now i got to ask questions. It's just too... Yeah, and there are many ways Suffolk County is, is a bit more advanced than that. You know, and there's, that's always the discussion when, you know, when we're talking as Suffolk librarians, oh, NASA has it so much easier because it's training and experiences, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, when, when you hear some of the stories that come out of Nassau County, you're like, no, they don't have it better than us. Mm-hmm. They have, we have it less worse than them. Because, you know, at least the one test is a written test. Mm-hmm. But then Suffolk County went ahead, and, uh, and we're going hyper-local on this, um, but Suffolk went from the, the two tests being training experience to being a written test. 
Is it? I took your Librarian 2 test one time years ago. That was a horror. Was that before they changed it to how we have ours? Because I had to have a calculator. So it was training experience, and it went to a written test, and that's where we're at now. So it's basically okay. it's the one test, uh-huh. but with that terrible list of uh, scheduling. Jamie works before Bob, but after Tim, and Tim only works Tuesdays and Thursdays. Like this isn't the LSAT. Oh my god! And then you have to do budget questions. So it's the one test with budget questions and scheduling questions. I don't like that written test. I like training, and only reason why I like training and experience is because someone sat down and told me how to fill it out properly. <laughs> and they told me they used to work for civil service, and they mm-hmm. told me the tip. If you, well, I'll share it. This person told me if you go to the website under job duties, mm-hmm. you print out the description. Use those specific words. Use the words. Because that'll give you more points for mm-hmm. the people scoring. Because you know librarians don't score. Right. Those right. are the tar- Those words will give you more points. Yep. It's wild. Civil service. So those of you who don't work in civil service out there in library land, don't think that the grass is greener. Because uh-uh. no matter where you go, the grass is not greener. Nope. Every yeah. place has its pros and cons. Absolutely. And wherever you go, I hope you try to add a garden to it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Are, are we good? I think we're good. Okay. So thanks for popping on and chatting with us. All right. Take care. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.